they've been married for 30 years. He's a pioneer of Catholic lay evangelization, and she has a master's degree in theology. Put on the coffee and get ready to open the scriptures. It's time for Bible with the Barbers. Now, here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome, welcome to Bible with the Barbers on this Friday. And, and what's today, April 16th? Anyway, um, Terry's not with me right now because he's watching our grandson, our grandson. Um, so, so here we are on Friday. It's still Easter. Happy Easter. And welcome to all of our listeners, wherever you're listening. Um, I understand we're not on YouTube at this point, but that's okay. Um, we want to speak the truth in charity, and we want people to know the truth. And if YouTube doesn't like the truth, well, that's YouTube. That's not God. So we, we are trying to be faithful to the Lord God, and we don't have to kowtow to the rules of the world, the flesh and the devil. So that's what we want to talk about today in our, um, in our, in our Scripture study about what kind of a kingdom did Jesus come to establish? Was he just a bread king? Was it for this world only? Or was there something else that he was trying to point to? Was there something more profound going on? So we're going to start today with the gospel of the day, which is from John 6. It's 1 through 15. It's just the very beginning of that chapter. And um, what's really beautiful is for the next um, week, for the gospel, the church will be giving us John 6. So it's a good time to study that whole chapter and, and what comes after what we're going to look at today. So the reading from the gospel according to John, Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs he was performing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish feast of Passover was near. When Jesus raised his eyes and saw that a large crowd was coming to him, he said to Philip, Where can we buy enough food for them to eat? He did this to test him, because he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred days' wages worth of food would not be enough for each of them to have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what good are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people recline. Now there was a great deal of grass in that place. So the men reclined, about 5,000 in number. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed them to those who were reclining, and also as much of the fish as they wanted. When they had had their fill, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments left over, so that nothing will be wasted. So they collected them and filled twelve wicker baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves that had been more than they could eat. When the people saw this sign that he had done, they said, This is truly the prophet, the one who has come into the world. Since Jesus knew that they were going to come and carry him off, to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain alone. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we have this beautiful gospel, and you know Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee. That Sea of Galilee is at the northern. Um, it's in it's in Galilee. It's nor in the northern part of Israel. Um, it was um, the uh, the Jordan River uh, flows out of the Sea of Galilee down into the Dead Sea, and so you have um, this large crowd follows him. 
Why? Because they had seen the signs that he was performing on the sick. They knew that Jesus was curing the sick. He was healing the blind, the lame, giving speech to the, to, to the dumb, opening the ears of the deaf. They'd seen all these things. And of course, you know, when you know somebody's working miracles, you keep hoping, well, he'll, he'll work one for me. You know, maybe I have some kind of an ailment that I want cured. And, and you know, if I stick close to him, maybe, maybe he'll heal me. You know, so they were, they, they were attracted to him because of the signs he was doing. All right. So it's interesting also, it, it, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. And it says the Jewish feast of Passover was near. I remember when I was doing Bible studies, the, um, when I was doing my scripture studies in college, there were some commentators who said about the Gospel of John, well, the Gospel of John, you know, it's all there up in the air somewhere. You know, it's not really rooted in this earth. You know, it's so um, ethereal and otherworldly. Well, the interesting thing about John's Gospel is he talks about very earthly things fire and water, you know, love, hate. Um, he talks about, um, uh, let's see, fire and water, love and hate, light and darkness, you know, and you're like, wait, and then, and then you notice that he's constantly referencing the time. So he tells you what time of the year it is, what, you know, there's a feast of the Jews nearby or like this, it's the time of Passover, and, and so it's from the Gospel of John. My one scripture uh, professor had mentioned, he pointed out, you know, it's in the Gospel of John that we realize the public life of our Lord is, is three years because he goes up to Jerusalem three different times for the Passover. <laughs> There's a three-year cycle. And from the other Gospels, you would almost get the impression that the public life of our Lord was maybe a year, maybe six months. But we know from the Gospel of John that our Lord went up to Jerusalem three separate times for the Passover, three different Passovers, so three consecutive years. So, that, that, you know, his, his Gospel is very much rooted in, in earthly things. He's, he, he gives you these little details that show that he's very attentive to what's going on around him. He's not removed from this world to the point where, oh, nothing in this world matters. No, everything matters to God. Everything matters to God. So he sat down, and he raises his eyes, and there's a large crowd coming, and he says to Philip, Philip is one of the apostles, where are we going to get the food to feed these people? Now, Jesus knew what he was going to do, but he's testing Philip. You know, do you have faith in me? It's like, well, Lord, um, you're the master here. What, what are we going to do? And Philip says, well, look, even if we had 200 days wages, we couldn't buy enough to even f to make them so that they were really satisfied. They could only get a little bit. And then um, Simon Peter's brother, Andrew, comes up. And he says, well, there's a, there's a young boy here, and he has five loaves and two fish, but... Yeah, well, what good is that? And Jesus tells the apostles, have them sit down. And there's a, there's a, he, again, John gives you a detail. There was a lot of grass in that, in that area, which would coincide with his statement that it was Passover time because Passover happens in the spring. And if there's a lot of grass in the area, it must be the time of year when the grass is growing. So um, it's springtime and there's a lot of grass. And there's only a couple places, I guess, on the Sea of Galilee where, um, from what I read in the commentaries, where there's a lot of grass. There's a, some big grassy fields, and there's, there's a couple of them, not a lot. So it was possibly in one of those, those two fields that, you know, this was what, where this miracle took place. And it is a miracle, right? I, we haven't read, yeah, we have read about the miracle. This is the, the story of the miracle. John 6, 1 through 15 tells us the miracle. And it is a miracle. And, and, and granted, you know, there's been a lot of commentary in the 20th century, and maybe this goes back to the Enlightenment or whatever, and this whole idea that, you know, the scriptures, well, if there's anything um, that seems to be um, otherworldly or supernatural, 
well, we need to just understand that that's people's superstition or their wishful thinking or, you know, this kind of thing. Well, no, actually, that's not true. And many people have experienced miracles in their life, genuine miracles. There are medical miracles all the time. Well, the doctors say, you know, this, this person shouldn't have lived. As a matter of fact, I have a nephew who was born with a, a great nephew who was born with a soft trachea. And um, apparently the treatment for that is that you send the child home with oxygen so that they can have oxygen, sufficient oxygen, because every time they breathe, their trachea collapses, so their oxygen starved. Unfortunately, this child was sent home without oxygen. But you know what? He lived. And which was, the doctor said that's a miracle, that he lived, that he, for four months he struggled for his life, and finally his pediatrician referred him to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. And um, he was able to get some treatment. By that time, the trachea had softened up, but unfortunately, in the meantime, there was some brain damage done. So the miracle, you know, that, that the child lived was a miracle in, in terms of medical, you know, he should have died. He wasn't getting enough oxygen, but he survived. Now, he, did he have brain damage? He has brain damage, but you know what? He's an incredible child, and he's also capable of doing a lot more than the doctor said he could ever do. So well, with all this damage in his brain, you know, he's never going to be able to walk, or he's never going to be able to ride a bike, or never going to be able to skate. He can do all those things. <laughs> he can do all those things, you know, and it, it's just beautiful. He just really, um, you know, so God is good, and he has a purpose. He has a, and I was thinking about it the other day, because my sister and I were talking, and this is, she's the grandmother, and, and I thought, you know, God has a purpose for this child's life. He made this child with a mission. He has a mission to accomplish in the building of the kingdom of God. And God has spared him so that he can part do his part in his mission for building the kingdom of God. And it's, it's beautiful. And yeah, God works miracles. You know, and just because he didn't work the miracle for me that I wanted or what, you know, someone might say, but that doesn't mean he doesn't work miracles. You know, when I was, when I was 19 years old, I had an appendicitis that wasn't diagnosed. And I was sick, real, literally sick with a burst appendix for a week and a half. By the time they got me into surgery, I was in pretty bad shape. And even after surgery, all the doctors, the surgeon said to my mother, I did everything I could, and I don't know what's going to happen. Now, it turns out that 9 out of 10 people who have a burst appendix, I guess, die. <laughs> or 9 out of 10, either that or 9 out of 10 people who get peritonitis die. I had peritonitis. I was in the hospital 25 days after surgery. And he says, well, you know, that's, yeah, medical intervention. God worked a slow miracle in terms of, but, but there were several times along the way when I could have died in the process of that, that illness. And God just said, no, I'm not ready for her. I'm, I'm not, you know, at the time I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't understand what was going on. It's all in retrospect, you know, 2020 hindsight. But the reality is that God is with us and we ask. And, and he always answers prayer. He always answers prayer. He doesn't always give us the answer we want. And we'll get into that in this commentary today. You know, is the answer we're looking for really the best answer for us? Is that really what is best for us? God wants our salvation. He wants us to be in heaven with him for all eternity. Lord, I want to win the lottery. Yeah, look at all the people who've won thousands or millions of dollars or whatever. And, and it, has it made their lives better? Has it brought them closer to God? Has it made them better people? In most instances, it really doesn't. And so is it the things of this world that are going to make us better? Is it worldly things that we're looking for? So we're going to go on and look at the, the rest of this and, and continue to talk about this today. And then what kind of a kingdom did Jesus come to establish? And is that one of the things that has to be rewritten in our soul because we're looking for the wrong kind of kingdom? Thank you for joining us on Bible with the Barbers on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you to all of our listeners, whether you're online or on the radio or on the app. And we'll be right back with you. 
Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome back to Bible with the Barbers. And again, Terry's babysitting our grandson. So um, I'm, I'm here. We're, um, we're, our guarding angels are with us, so we're never alone. Thank you, God. And we're looking at John 6, the, the gospel reading for today, John 6, 1 through 15. And I've mentioned a few things already um, that you have, you have this um, area where they, they come and there's lots of grass to sit down. But J- Jesus notices something, right? He says, these people are hungry. All right. He looks up at the crowd and, and, and he has compassion on them. Jesus doesn't just, he's not just concerned with our spiritual well-being, although that's the primary because we want to get to heaven. But he's also concerned with our material well-being. That's, he worked miracles. He healed people. He, he, and, and here he's going, he feeds them. Now he asks Philip to test Philip, what would Philip's response be and the apostle's response? And He's trying to bring the apostles to the point to understand, trust me, no matter what, trust me. It doesn't matter what it looks like, trust me. And granted, you know, what did it look like? You've got a crowd of 5,000 men, not counting women and children. It doesn't look like they have a way to feed these people. And yet Jesus is able to do this. And, and as I said, miracles still happen. And within the church, you know, one of the best kept secrets, Scott Hahn used to say, one of the best kept secrets of the Catholic faith, the saints. Read the lives of the saints. You know, people like to look at the Catholic church and point to the sinners and the people who have failed publicly, especially the ones who have publicly been uh, humiliated because of their sins. Their sins have been made public. And some of those sins are heinous crimes. And we need to pray for them and their conversion. God doesn't wish the death of the sinner. He wants us all to convert, and we're all sinners. But the saints are the ones who live the gospel to the full. So read the lives of the saints. Study the lives of the saints. See what God has done in them. And yes, God works miracles through his saints, even today. God has worked many miracles through his saints. And the greatest miracle God ever works is the miracle of conversion, you know, it's often people say, oh, once a drug addict, always a drug addict. Once an once a alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Once this, that, whatever sin it is that there's primarily their sin, always they will be that. They can never change, right? There was a man, his name was Clinton Duffy, and he was the warden of San Quentin. And I don't know exactly when, but I heard a man by the name of Bill Sands, who had been in San Quentin when Clinton Duffy became the warden. And when Clinton Duffy became the warden, Bill Sands said, that before Clinton Duffy came there, Bill had had every bone in his body broken at least once by the guards in San Quentin. That's how they were allowed to treat the prisoners. This was back in the, I don't know, 40s, 50s. And Duffy wrote a book called The San Quentin Story. And people used to criticize Duffy. They used to say, Duffy, you should know that a leopard never changes his spots because he was talking about prison reform and he was talking about reforming prisoners. And Duffy responded to that comment, a leopard never changes his spots, by saying, men change. He said, yes, but you should know that I don't work with leopards. I work with men. And men change every day. Did we get it? I don't work with leopards. I work with men. And men change every day. Good men become evil and evil men become good. 
It's the grace of God, and it's the humility to ask for God's help. And anyone can change. Yes, absolutely. Anyone can change. Is it a struggle? Is it hard? Jesus never said it would be easy. He only said it would be possible. And only then if we ask for his help. So Jesus is concerned for our well-being. He's concerned about us. And he wants the apostles to trust him no matter how bad it looks. So when you're working with someone who looks like it's ho- it looks like it's hopeless, like they could never change, they could never become better, pray for that person. God's grace can change them. You know, it doesn't matter what what ailment they have, what sins they're attached to, what you know, where they've been, you know, Betty Brennan was drawn into the occult and got out of it. We, we know several people who have been in the occult. They've been Satanists and they have come out of it and they're serving the Lord. Bartolo Longo, again, the saints of the Catholic Church. He was a Satanist priest and he's a saint of the Catholic Church today, not because he served Satan, but because he t- realized that Satan was a false um, God and he turned away from Satan who was only a creature, and turned back to the Lord God, the true God, and served him. So yes, men change every day. We can pray for one another, beg God to give us the grace to change. Doesn't matter what our major fault is, we can change. So Jesus is testing their faith. Does he trust them? So the people sit down, and what does Jesus do? He takes the loaves, and he gives thanks, and he distributes them to them. In the three synoptic gospels, in the threefold, <laughs> there's only one gospel, remember? The church, there's one gospel with four aspects. In the three aspects written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all give the account of the Last Supper where Jesus institutes the Holy Eucharist. In John's account, he doesn't give the Last Supper institution of the Holy Eucharist, but he gives us this, John 6. And when it says here, Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed them. It's the same words that Matthew, Mark, and Luke use at the Last Supper when Jesus takes the bread, gives thanks, and gives it to his apostles. The Eucharist. This is a, pre, this is a foreshadowing of the sacred Eucharist. This is Passover time. It's happening at Passover time. It, it's the Lord who's doing this, and he's, he's giving this reference. So we have this, it's just around Passover. And remember, Passover was the prefigurement of the Paschal Lamb. The Lamb was sacrificed at Passover, and Christ comes to be the true Lamb, who will give his life, but he's going to die and come to life again. He's going to take back. He's not going to stay dead. As, as a friend of mine said, her father always said, Jesus got up from the dead bed. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. Now, he doesn't rise back like Lazarus. He's not resuscitated. He has to still live this human life on earth, and he's going to die again. No, he died once for all. He will never die again. But he rose from the dead in a risen, glorified state, and he wants to share that glory with all of us. So this is the prefiguring of this. And so John 6 is the prefiguring of the Last Supper and what's going to happen at the Last Supper. And since none of the other apostles that wrote, well, evangelists, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, none of them included that in their um, aspect of the gospel, John puts it in his. John tried not to repeat anything unnecessarily. And so there's very little in John that is found in the, other, in, the, in the other three aspects of the gospel. Remember, it's a single gospel with four aspects, told from four different perspectives, with four different audiences in mind. 
And so each of them is trying to reach their audience and at the same time tell what's most important to help the audience they're speaking to to come to faith in Christ. None of it's made up. As a matter of fact, the church tells us in the Second Vatican Council documents that what's written in the Gospels is what Jesus really did and taught while living among men. Oh, yes, for their salvation. And some people say, oh, well, see, because it says for their salvation, it's only the things that he taught for their salvation that are what he really did and taught. Well, excuse me. There's nothing that Jesus really did and taught while he was living on this earth from the first moment of his conception till, till his ascension into heaven that he didn't do for the sake of our salvation. <laughs> he became man for the sake of our salvation. Everything is for the sake of our salvation to redeem us and bring us back to Christ. So it's all true. It's all true. Okay, did they go around with a tape recorder? No. But they have the Holy Spirit to enlighten them because the primary author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit. This isn't my opinion. This is the solid teaching of the church. This is the sacred deposit of faith that has been passed on from generation to generation. Okay? Read what the church writes about Scripture. So we have this gospel, and the people are fed. And then after they're fed, everyone gets to eat as much as they want. There were five loaves and two fish. Oh, well, maybe they were really big loaves, you know. Maybe they were the extra giant, you know, instead of the foot long, maybe they were the two foot long or the four foot long, you know. Um, maybe the fish were the biggest fish in the Sea of Galilee. You know, maybe they were the, the, the whales, right? Maybe, well, no, I don't think so. There was a little boy carrying them around, okay. <laughs> and so this child is carrying the, 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 the means by which Jesus will feed 5,000. It's a true miracle. Jesus really did work miracles when he lived on this earth. God really worked miracles even before he became man in the Old Testament. Miracles, you know, people were raised from the dead. The prophets fed numerous people with very little. In one, on one occasion, was it Elijah? or I think it was Elijah. Oops. <clears throat> if I'm wrong, please call in and tell me. That's okay. But one of the prophets did. He fed, and that was a prefiguring of what Christ would do. And there are two occasions in the gospel where Jesus feeds a large crowd on very little food. It's a miracle. It's a genuine miracle. God is capable of that. And he hasn't forgotten us, and he still works miracles today. So he tells the apostles to gather up the fragments so that nothing is lost. This is a prefiguring of the Eucharist. And I find it interesting as I remember someone said to me one time, well, I'm sure they weren't worrying about the crumbs. Well, actually, Jesus was worrying about the crumbs. He said, gather up the fragments, gather up the fragments so that nothing is lost. You see, the church teaches us about the Holy Eucharist, that Jesus Christ is present in every visible particle of the host, in every drop that's in the chalice of his precious blood. The host is really the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, present under the appearance of bread. And the, the chalice is really filled, the wine is really changed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, his risen, ascended, glorified body. But it's really Christ. So that if the chalice is spilled, the body of our Lord is desecrated if it's not properly taken care of. If a host is dropped on the ground, the particles that fall off can be desecrated if it's not properly taken care of. Receiving communion in the hand, if you ever receive communion in the hand, you're supposed to check your hand and make sure that there are no particles of the host still in your hand. And if there are, you're supposed to lick them. 
You're supposed to consume them. And by the way, in the early church, yes, there was communion in the hand, but they received our Lord in their right hand, not the left. And they never touched Jesus with their fingers. When they received Jesus in their right hand, they looked upon him and adored him. And then they raised their hand to their mouth and consumed Jesus by putting their tongue to their hand to consume the host. That's how communion was received, if it was received in the hand in the early church. And we have that because St. Cyril of Jerusalem wrote it down, okay, in his his, um, mystical catechesis, in his catechesis of what was the proper way to receive our Lord. And he says, don't, if you had gold dust in your hands, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to lose a single particle of it. And yet him who you hold in your hands is far more valuable than gold dust. Don't lose a single particle. Jesus is really present in the, in the smallest particle of the host, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And this is apropos because we're looking at John 6. <laughs> so I hear the music again. I want to thank all of our listeners. I want to thank our supporters too, especially all of those who support our radio Endeavors, 877-526-2151 if you want to make a donation. And thank you for joining us. Welcome. And I hope you're enjoying the Bible as much as I am. We'll be back in a Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Well, welcome back. And again, Terry is babysitting our grandson. It is the 16th of April, Friday. Thank you for joining us on Bible with the Barbers. Happy Easter. We're still celebrating Easter. And by the way, the miracle in the Old Testament was not Elijah. It was his successor, Elisha. And it was Elisha who multiplied 20 loaves of barley for 100 men with some left over. And that's in Kings, 2 Kings, 2 Kings 4, 42 through 44. So I found it in the commentary. (laughs) So I can correct myself. It was Elisha the prophet. Whom, and it's interesting because in the commentary here, it mentions the barley loaves were the food of the poor. And it's interesting, allegorically, here we have St. Saint, Saint Bede saying that, um, yeah, St. Bede comments that allegorically, the five barley loaves represent the Torah. There are five of them, the five books of the Torah. And the two fish represent the prophet and the Psalms. And the little boy represents the Jewish people. And Jesus takes and he blesses the Old Testament and he breaks it open and, and, and the meaning becomes so abundant. So you know, what, what was hidden there now becomes revealed and it's so abundant, overly abundant, more than we could take in. As John says in the end of his gospel, if everything that Jesus did and said while he was living on this earth was written down, I'm sure the world could not contain the books. And people say, well, hyperbole. Well, yeah, there's a bit of hyperbole there. But look at all the books that have been written since the time of Christ on the meaning of his life and on the meaning of the Gospels and the, and the Scriptures. And we're still writing and finding new insights. Not different. We're not, we're not negating the old teachings the deposit of faith is a sacred deposit of faith. It can't be changed, but we can find new and deeper meanings into what it means. And so we have this, this beautiful, and it was the prophet Elisha who, feed, who fed 100 men on 20 barley loaves. But now Jesus takes only five barley loaves and he feeds 5,000 men. And of course, Christ being God, the miracle is much greater. So we have Jesus here and he's fed these people on the five loaves and the two fish. Well, did he come just to be a bread king? 
Has he come just to take away all of human suffering and just make sure that we're never hungry, we're never thirsty? You know, um, well, what about his own life? And we, we need to, I need to finish the commentary here on John 6, but these are some of the questions we want to get to here before the end of this show. So they had their fill and the apostles gather up the, ba- the fragments, the fragments, so that there's nothing lost, all right? And what happens? When the people saw the sign, they said, truly, this is the prophet, the one who has come into the world. And Jesus knew that they would carry him off to make him a king, and he withdrew to the mountain alone. So the people are like, whoa, this is it. I mean, you know, yeah, the prophet Elisha fed 100 men with five barley, with 20 barley loaves. This man, he fed 5,000 men with five barley loaves. That's, that, you know, five, and, and it's like, wow, this, this guy, this, it's, this, he has to be the one. He has to be the Messiah. But they're going to carry him off and make him king. Well, what's wrong with that? So, I mean, that's what he is, right? He lets the people acknowledge that he's king, and then he leaves, <laughs> and he hides himself from them. Why? Well, what kind of king are they looking for? What is their expectation? The Jews at the time of Jesus were expecting a Messiah who would free them from Roman domination and would restore them to a place that they enjoyed in the Middle East when David and Solomon were king, a place of authority over the nations around them, a place of honor, and a, pl- and, you know, a pr- place of power, a worldly kingdom. They're not looking for an otherworldly kingdom. They're not looking for the true freedom that Christ has come to bring. And if you look in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and I wrote it down, because I, and I don't have the Catechism with me, but in paragraphs 439, 449, and 459, one of the neat things about the Catechism, and I try and remind people this, if you want a good commentary on Scripture, look up a particular, in the back of the Catechism, they have all the Scripture references that are referenced in the Catechism. And maybe the one you're looking for won't be there. I tried this the other day, and one of the ones I was looking for wasn't there. That's okay. But there's many. And so you can go in and you can look up a scripture passage. And so I went in and I looked up John 6, 1 through 15. And for John 6, 15, verse 15, where he, you know the people want to carry him off to be king and he goes off to the mountain alone. He, he acknowledges, he lets them acknowledge that he is the Lord. But then the catechism teaches us, but he didn't come to establish a, worth, a worldly kingdom or an earthly kingdom. He came to free us from sin, the greatest evil. He came to free us from the greatest slavery, the greatest hunger. He came to fill us with God. We hunger for God. The hunger of our body is to remind us that we are hungering for God. The thirst of our body is to remind us that we are thirsting for God. Sin is death to the soul. The death of the body is to remind us that we don't want to die in sin because we would be separated from God from all eternity. The death of the body doesn't separate us from God. It's the state of our soul. Are we in the state of grace? Are we in God's grace? Or are we living in mortal sin? Are we living in a state separated from God? Lord, if I am not in the state of grace, put me in the state of grace. If I'm in the state of grace, keep me in the state of grace. We can never infallibly know if we're in the state of grace, but we can know if we desire to be there. And St. Francis de Sales, who was a doctor of the church, taught, if we desire to be there, we cannot persevere in that desire without God infallibly putting us in the state of grace. So constantly ask for the grace to be in the state of grace. But we can know if we're conscious, you know, um, consciously conscious of having commit a grave moral evil. And if I've committed a grave moral evil and I did it willfully and with sufficient, not, you know, sufficient knowledge and, 
and and it, it was freely committed, that's a moral sin. And so we need to examine ourselves. Are we looking for a bread king who's going to take away all of our sufferings and give us all the food and, and material things we want? Or are we looking for a king who's going to free us from sin, from the power of sin, from enslavement to the devil, and give us freedom to live as children of God, in union with God here on this earth, not just in heaven. This earth is a foretaste of heaven if we're living in union with God. We were talking about suffering and the joy that can come in suffering that's offered up. You know, people don't always understand what suffering is about, and they want Jesus to take all the suffering away. He didn't come to eradicate human suffering. He suffered. Was he hungry? You bet he was hungry. He didn't eat for 40 days in the desert. Was he thirsty? Yeah. He didn't drink anything for 40 days in the desert. He was tempted in every way that we are, but without sin. He never sinned. So he came to free us from the power of sin so that we can live in union with God. So these paragraphs in the catechism explain to us that, yes, he is the Messiah, and yes, the people should acknowledge that he's Messiah, but he's not the Messiah they're expecting. He didn't come to establish a worldly kingdom. He came to establish the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And it's not, the kingdom of heaven isn't going to last forever on earth. The earth, as we know it, is passing away. Paul tells us so, and that's the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul. The world as we know it is passing away. We want to be with God in heaven for all eternity. So Jesus came to establish this kingdom where God is all in all. And it's not about taking away all the suffering. It's about redeeming the meaning of the suffering. And I do a Bible study on Tuesday evenings. By the way, anyone who's local, Tuesday evenings from 7 to 9, um, whenever there's a funeral in the chapel or some of the religious service in the chapel going on on a Tuesday evening, then we have the Bible study upstairs in the office. But... Someone was asking about that, the question, the perennial question, but suffering, what about suffering? How do we tell our family members about suffering? Well, the first thing is to look at the cross. Christ suffered. He didn't come to eradicate human suffering. He came to fill it with his presence, but also that it has meaning. All of our sufferings can be offered up in union with Christ to help redeem the world. How do we know that? Because, again, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes... I fill up in my own flesh what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. That all of my sufferings can have meaning to bring grace and blessing to the church for the conversion of sinners, for the salvation of souls. A beautiful story. The Opus Sanctorum Angelorum has a practice of praying for priests on Thursdays, keeping company with Jesus on Thursday evening for the lay people at least for an hour, for the priests and religious when they're in their convent from nine to midnight on Thursday evening, three hours, spending time with Jesus in the garden, keeping him company in his passion. And in one of their meditations, they have this story. It's a true story. A young girl, she was diagnosed with tuberculosis and she was going to die. She's in her hospital room. And at least the doctors, they said they couldn't do anything for her. She was going to die. And this priest comes in and she said, Father, don't talk to me about death. I don't want to die. I'm young. I have so much. I want to live. And he said, well, he said, I will pray that you will recover from this illness. But would you be willing to offer your sufferings for a priest? And she said, what? And he said, your brother asked me to come. Your brother is a, her brother was a priest. And he 
he didn't think he could approach his sister himself, so he asked a friend of his to go. And he would like you to pray for his priesthood. So we'll pray that you recover from your illness, but would you try to offer the suffering that you're going through to Christ in union with Jesus? And she said, Father, I'll try. I'll try. Well, a few days later, they sent her home. They had done what they could do for her, and they sent her home. Well, for the next six months, she offered all of her sufferings in union with Jesus, particularly for her brother's priesthood. She didn't tell her brother, and she told the priest not to tell her brother that she was going to do this. But before she died, she told her brother. And what was interesting is people noticed a tremendous joy. They noticed this change in her. This young woman who had been so afraid of death became so joyful. And before she died, she told her brother that she had offered her sufferings for him and for his priesthood. And she's not the only one. There's a book called No Stranger to Hatred, No Stranger to Love. And again, it's the stories of nine or 10 different people who have suffered tremendous injustices, tremendous evils, and that they found joy in this suffering united to Christ. There's a beautiful book, Chiara Corbella Patrio, A Witness to Joy. And she died of cancer of the face at the young age. I believe she was 27. She died in 2014. But her suffering was transformed into joy, and she was transformed into joy. She was dying of cancer of the face, and people used to come to visit her because she was so joyful. They wanted to be in the presence of this joy. So we will be back with more on Bible with the Barbers and what kind of a kingdom did Jesus really come to establish. God bless you, and thank you for your support, for your prayers, and for all that you offer up in union with Christ to help redeem the world. Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome back to Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, April the 16th. And Terry is babysitting our grandson. So um, I'm here with my guardian angel. And thank you for joining us. Thank you for all of you who support Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And thank you. The you know material, the support is so important. We do have to pay the bills. You can call 877-526-2151 to make a donation. But also those who support us with your prayers and your sacrifices, which we may not see and we may not know, but they are extremely fruitful because the whole point of Virgin Most Powerful Radio is to reach souls for Christ, and we can't do that. The grace of God has to reach them. And I know that throughout the years, of you know, often people have asked Terry, well, how did you do this? How did you build this? And he didn't. His father had dementia, and his mother wanted to take care of his father at home. He'd had several brain operations. And so Terry was not married. His other one brother was married, and the other brother had died already. And so Terry moved home to help his mother take care of his dad. He was on call 24 hours a day because his dad had lots of emergencies. So he was like, well, what can I do? So he started this apostolate of distributing Catholic tapes and recording Catholic conferences, particularly pro-life conferences, and then Bishop Sheen's Life is Worth Living, Father Pat McHugh gave him the record albums, and, and he put those on audio tape. So there's this whole history, but there's a whole history of suffering. His father offered his suffering for Terry's apostolate. His mother offered her sufferings for Terry's apostolate. And then throughout the years, so many people have offered their sufferings. People have prayed. People are suffering. People dying from cancer. Priests who died of cancer, they've 
they said, I'm going to offer the end of my life for your, for your apostolate. All of my sufferings I'm offering. And, these are, and these, this is so, you know, all of our sufferings can be offered up in union with Jesus to help redeem the world. And it does bring joy. It can bring joy to a life of great suffering. And it can take away our fear of death. When we begin to understand and realize our suffering has meaning and it is powerful before God, powerful before God. So we're talking about what kind of a kingdom did Jesus come to establish? Well, he came to establish the kind of kingdom God had envisioned, not a political kingdom, not, not a kingdom where there would be no suffering and no death. There, you know, God had a perfect paradise. When he created Adam and Eve, there was no suffering, no death. As a matter of fact, if you read Wisdom, is it Wisdom 524, I believe, if I remember correctly, that God made man for immortality. He did not make him for death. God made man to be immortal, it says. So God didn't intend death. He, he made paradise and he put Adam and Eve in it. And they were just supposed to not eat from that one tree, that one tree, just one tree. There was just one tree in the garden they weren't supposed to eat from. And oh boy, oh boy, isn't it just like us? Oh, but that's God's keeping something from me, right? Eve is there. She's looking at this tree. We call that the near occasion of sin. How do we know she was there? Because she's by the tree. God said, don't eat from that tree. As a matter of fact, Eve says, God said, don't even touch it. Lest you do, you'll die. And what is she doing? She's standing by it. Why are you standing by something? It's called the near occasion of sin. And Adam's with her. She gave some of the fruit to her husband who was with her. <laughs> so it's like, um, hmm, do we do this to ourselves? The near occasion of sin. And it's like, but, but I want it. I want it. I want it. I keep thinking of I, 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 I. You know, and instead of asking the Lord, Lord, take me away. Show me, give me a distraction Help me to get myself away from the situation. Help me to change what I need to change in my life so I'm not constantly falling into these same patterns of sin. So Jesus comes to establish what kind of a kingdom? The perfect paradise was there in paradise and Adam and Eve sinned. And when they sinned, they lost all the special gifts that God had given them that were above and beyond their nature. Integration, infused knowledge, that they would never die, that there would be no sickness. Oh, gee, <laughs> and so now death and sin and suffering have entered into the world. But God doesn't make them a curse. He becomes the curse. The second person of the Blessed Trinity, right? A curse be anyone who's hung on a tree? He becomes the curse. He takes upon himself the punishment for our sins because, first of all, the offense was committed against God. So it's an infinite offense. Only God can make up to God the price that had to be paid. But man was the one who offended him. So only a man could pay the price. So God became man. Only God could figure it out, right? God would take to himself a human nature. He's not a human person. He took to himself a human nature. He's a divine person with two natures. And, and I, you know, it's easy for us to slip and make the mistake of calling him a human person. He's not. He's a divine person with a human nature. But he redeems the nature. He redeems our nature and he takes our debt and pays it. So what kind of a kingdom does he come to establish? He's standing before Pilate in John 18 and Pilate says, so are you a king? And he says, are you saying this on your own or have others been saying it to you? <laughs> I'm not a Jew. It's your own people and the chief priests have handed you over. What have you done? 
And Jesus says, my kingship is not of this world. If my kingship were of this world, my servants would be fighting to have me released. My kingship is not here. Now, before the Sanhedrin, he was a blasphemer, and he had offended God because he claimed to be God. But before Pilate, he's a political prisoner who is trying to establish a kingdom that's opposed to the Roman kingdom. So obviously, Rome has to put him to death because he's trying to establish his kingdom. And so Jesus is he's showing Pilate, no, I don't have a political kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my subjects would be fighting to have me released. By the way, thereby, um, what do you say, um, verifying that Peter would have fought to the death for Jesus. My subjects would be fighting to release me if my kingdom were of this world. But his kingdom is not of this world. That's why he stopped Peter. That's why he made Peter put his sword back and say, no, that's not the way. That's not my kingdom. It's not a political kingdom. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God where the dignity of every human person is recognized, where every human person is recognized as a person made in the image of God, a unique, unrepeatable image and likeness of God with infinite value, the value that God put on him. How valuable are we? We're valuable enough that God himself died for us. Whoa, yes, God, he paid an infinite price because an infinite price was due, but he paid it for us so that we could participate in God's life, that we could be brought back into union and communion with God. So this is the kingdom Jesus has come to establish, where we are concerned for the poor, where we're feeding the hungry and giving drink to the thirsty and clothing the naked, not just because it's social work, but because we see in them Jesus. And Mother Teresa of Calcutta, when she was serving the poor in India, you know that she spent hour, uh, uh, her sisters spend five hours a day in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament in prayer, mass, their divine office, meditation, and an extra holy hour. That, and the sisters are the one who encouraged Mother to add the afternoon holy hour. When they came back from working in the streets, they needed to be refilled with Christ. And Mother said, if I did not see him in the Eucharist, I could not see him in my neighbor. So there's this back and forth. We must love our neighbor so that we can see God in him. But at the same time, we must love our God in, in the Eucharist so that we can see him in our neighbor. So we, we can't love God without loving our neighbor, but we can't love our neighbor without loving God. It's not either or, it's both and. And mother said, if I didn't see him in the Eucharist, I would not see him and recognize him in my neighbor. So we beg the Lord. We take time with him. This is the kingdom he's come to establish, a kingdom where we are living in union with him. It's not about myself. It's about him. We don't need Eeyore syndrome. You know, it's not about beating myself up and saying how bad I am. By the way, when we're constantly thinking about ourselves, who's the subject of our meditation? Myself. <laughs> wait a minute. Oh, no, wait. Oh, stop. No. I don't want to meditate on myself. I want to meditate on God and the goodness of God and how much he loves me and what he can make me by his love. That he can transform me into a living image of himself. That we can radiate Christ to our brothers and sisters by allowing him to live in and through us. What was it Paul said in, his, in one of his letters? I live now, not I, but Jesus Christ lives in me. And this is what we are trying to do. And this is what Mother Teresa was trying to do, to spread Christ, to spread his love. She would say to the people, 
that she was taking care of after she had taken care of, picked them up off the streets, cleaned them up, washed them, bathed them, fed them. Do you know Jesus? And they'd look at her and say, oh, mother, is he anything like you? No, she would respond. No, but I try to be like him. And the people would say, oh, mother, we want to know Jesus. You see, if they see his love in us, they will want to know him. But if we're going around with a sad face and, oh, life is so hard, and, oh, I have to beat myself up, and everything's horrible, and everything's terrible, and everybody's going to hell, are they going to want to follow Christ <laughs> if that's what Christians are like? No. And the truth of the matter is Jesus didn't make us to go to hell. He made us for heaven. He made us for union with himself. That's the kingdom he wants to establish. He wants us to understand. And in order to do that, we have to pray. We have to be in union with God. What is prayer? Prayer is that dialogue, that loving conversation with him who loves us. And you know, you become like the one you love. You become like the one you love. So fall in love with God. Beg God for the grace to fall in love with him. That's the establishment of his kingdom, that we will be in love with him and that we will spread his love everywhere we go, to everyone we meet, in everything we do. Live constantly in the presence of God. We have to practice the presence of God. That is that constant striving to remind ourselves, God is present to us at all times. He has never forgotten us. He's always looking at us. So Jesus didn't come to establish a worldly kingdom. And yes, he fed the hungry, and he healed the sick, and he cured the lepers, and he still does today. But the kingdom that he came to establish is the kingdom of his Father on this earth where love is the primary concern. In the end, there are three things that last, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. You know, the devil has faith. He believes in God, but it didn't save him. So faith alone does not save because that's all he has. He doesn't have hope or love. We need charity. We need faith that is ignited, set on fire with charity. So we're, we're, we're in this time of Easter. We're praying for the coming of the Holy Spirit. We're, we're walking with the early church, you know, meditating on the resurrection of the Lord, that death is not the end of the story, that even if we lose our life in this earth, we have a life waiting for us in heaven, eternal glory waiting for us in heaven. So let us pray for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Beg God to pour out his spirit upon us and to re-enkindle in us that fire of love so that we will radiate Christ wherever we go. Again, thank you so much for your support, for your prayers, for your generous donations. We couldn't do this without your support. And thank you for listening. Like and share this. Let your friends and family know about this. And We'll be back, God willing, next week with Bible with the Barbers again. But there are other shows you want to listen to, too, on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And if you don't have our app, download our app. If you're listening on the radio, thank you for joining us. But you can also listen to the podcast at any time on our app. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, signing off for today. <laughs>